0: And I say that name because um, I am of Polish descent. My great-grandma, Grandma Lily, uh, was born in Wuj and speaks Yiddish as a first language. So it's been passed down to me. Uh, so I have uh, no hesitation about calling you a mensch. Thank you so much. And, um, that- and um, I'll, I'll take any compliment that's going. Um,
1: and one of my bosses was formerly uh, was, was, uh, Louise Mensch. Oh, Before you're MP. kidding. So whenever I hear the name Mensch, I always think back to uh, to Louise, who's quite a character.
0: Yes, she is. She, she had her moment in the sun, and then she buggered off to the States. But does that mean you've met her husband, rock manager Peter Mensch? Do
1: you know what? I'm not... I've been to their house, um, but I'm not sure I ever actually met him. I know that he goes around, or at least he used to go around... Saying I'm the only person left in the music business who still makes money. Yeah, um, and he's quite a he's quite a character, um, and she's quite a, a rock chick as well. Um, and we worked together on a Dow Jones um, website called Heat Street that lasted about eighteen months. Um, and I was I was overseeing features, and um, it was interesting. It was. Um, it was ultimately unsuccessful, but we did some very good, uh, we did some very good journalism. Um, and uh, one of my ideas was to get um, an outspoken full, uh, former footballer who had a high profile to weigh in on, on England and Chelsea and, and the Premier League. Um, and that was Chris Sutton.
0: So it's your fault that the book I'm now holding in my hand, which is called Yeah Better Than That, How to Fix Modern Football came out. Now, I rarely do this, but I was so excited about it that I bought it more or less on day of release. Uh came out in 2020, dedicated to his late father, uh, Mike Sutton. Uh and it was helped um with Nigel Tassel who has a book out about the championship as well. Um but yeah, Chris Sutton, I was listening to him on the Euro 2020 coverage. He's come a long way. So uh, are you proud to have um helped cocoon
1: yeah, the career well, of Chris it Sutton? didn't last it didn't last very to be honest the column didn't last very long it got a certain degree of traction i remember the the guys at the daily star followed some of his musings up and um about about england and because um, i liked because he's quite punchy and the website was heat street was supposed to be you know quite um quite direct and um I think "no safe spaces" was the mantra, and it was very strange because um, the tone of the news was just um, was sometimes quite unpalatable, to be honest with you. But I had my own island of of features, Um, so I had to kind of um, align myself with the sensibility of the site whilst being able to kind of, you know, go off off book and have a certain kind of autonomy about um, what I could do and it worked out really well the problem was was that it was a site that was launched out of the US I remember Chris did something on Bob Bradley for instance taking over at Swansea but, but the, the problem is there are only so many of those we could do you know Chris didn't like most people Chris didn't didn't keep a, an eagle eye out on the MLS for instance so for our American readers um, it was uh, it was difficult but great fun while it lasted.
0: Mm. Uh, Chris has written for the Daily Mail, He's he uh, presents 606, yes. uh, as if to underline the lack of journalism needed to do 606, it was presented by Chris Sutton and Robbie Savage, uh, who are media trained but unlike you, uh, unless they really do possess one, they don't have a journalism diploma. So you've been a professional hack, if I can call yeah, you that. So yeah, so yeah, yeah, yeah. I
1: was... I was a journalist from the end of the set, uh, from the beginning of of uh, like literally two thousand till um, till last year. A few a few other things in between, but now I work in financial communications. So um, so for the past six seven months, um, I haven't been a working journalist, and um, and you know it is so much fun being a journalist. As the cliché goes, it, it beats working, but. Um, it just seemed the right time to uh to, to go and do something else because to be honest with you um it's changed so much in ways that you, know, you have to follow the circus a lot more i'm enjoying kind of advising hmm. other other people and, and other companies on I... how to communicate and what a story is rather than actually worry about that myself but no i i uh, Worked for The Standard. I worked work in London and New York. When you had to pay for it, I worked for the Daily Mail for a bit. I worked uh, for most newspapers uh, from New York, where I lived for 10 years. Came back, covered hedge funds for the Dow Jones Financial News. Um, and then now I, I, I work in, uh, in business PR. Where in New York did you live? I lived on the Upper East Side. It was great fun, actually. New York um, it's, as a city; it has such a low attention span mm-hmm. that um, you're always, you know, really entertained by the fact that there's a story on every street. And um, it, it was it was fascinating from a football uh, perspective because um, when I got there, I remember getting to New York in March 2007 um, and setting up our with 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 my wife setting up our TV. And the Fox Soccer Channel was showing some obscure game. It, it might even have been your team, Watford. Um,
0: yeah, we were in the Premier League at the time.
1: Yeah, I think so because shortly after I moved, uh, Paul Robinson scored that scored that majestic goal for mm-hmm. the mighty Tottenham Hotspur against you. So I think it was Watford against someone, anyway. And I just thought, what? I no idea that you could, you know, that, that there was more talent, more football on TV in the in more UK football on TV in the, uh, in the US than, um, than in the UK. Um, that changed during the pandemic, of course, um, where it kind of leveled up, but, but I, you know, I, I was there between 2007 and 2018 and it was really fascinating to see the, the increase in, um, in interest in football, especially in, in English football, because, um, because of, I think, because of the story, you know, because of the story surrounding the big clubs and the, um, the attention paid to it by TV companies. Yeah, but, uh, also, but also...
0: also the Glazers had taken over Man U, uh, John Henry and Fenway had taken over Liverpool, Randy Lerner was having his brief time in the sun at Villa. So, yeah. and the American aspect of things, but the one thing that we hope to do is have a kind of British invasion with the women's game, which kicks off around the time this comes out, because this will go out uh, in the middle of September. Um, So the the Women's Soccer League will be in full swing. Do you think that American sport networks will treat women's football in Britain in the same way? Britain or America? Uh, In America. Given that women's football is so huge in America, I mean, it dwarfs what's going on here.
1: Absolutely. I think traditionally... How can I put it? You haven't had the challenges and the prejudices haven't been so ingrained in, re- in regards to women's football um, in the US. But what you do have is, because there's been such a exponential um, increase in coverage of the men's game in the US, you've now got an issue of, which I think you also have in the UK as well, of just... Um, of bandwidth almost so you know people are quite passionate in the US about their Premier League teams Premier League men's teams so that might be a logistical challenge but I definitely think that um, you know one thing that I found sad about football in the UK was um, you know the level of um, misogyny that exists in, and I saw that in on social media, and I would never have predicted that. To be honest with you, I'd have got that wrong. I have said no, most people aren't that prejudiced, but and, and maybe most people are prejudiced in the UK. But certainly, some of the things I've seen that are public are quite eye opening and surprising. And I think you've seen them as well. And I don't think that exists to the to the same extent in the. Uh, in the U.S. Because the remember... U.S.
0: is quite meritocratic. I mean, you, you, the last 20 years, the U.S. women's team yeah. has been the best, which is why it was surprising that they only got the bronze medal in the Olympics.
1: Yeah, absolutely. No, you, you've hit upon something there. Where I, could, I could say to my neighbour, um, I want to end up ending, uh, owning a football club in the U.K. And my neighbour in the U.S. would probably say, good luck, you know, uh, go for it. Um, if I said to someone here, I want to own my own football club, depending on how much they knew, they might laugh and compare me to Michael Knighton or they might, mm. you know, uh, be disdainful. But I think I think the overall reaction would be much more cynical. So yeah, it is, it is, it is, it is more meritocratic in the US. But it, it, I, re- I used to really like hearing, when I was in the US, hearing stories from. From British friends who'd been in New York a lot longer than I had, um, about you know v- VHS tapes being smuggled over oh, of cool. Man cool. U finally winning the Premier League in uh, '93, right? And, and interesting things like that. And luckily, I came over, and it was um, it was all on TV. One of the things I really liked in the uh, in the U in New York was b- bumping occasionally bumping into English football. Footballers, whether Ooh. that was on whether they were on holiday. I remember, um, I remember encountering Dean Saunders in Bloomingdale's, and um, Dean Saunders doing a double take at someone recognizing him in in Manhattan. Yeah. it was um, it was always quite amusing when you to kind of have brushes with with English footballers in in, yeah. in Manhattan. This
0: sounds like a but Danny remember, Baker feature. Sounds like one of the things oh, you go. Oh, have oh, you ever oh, bumped oh, into a footballer in? In a, in a shopping mall somewhere far so, away from where they play.
1: So, funny enough, when you were talking about 606, I wanted to say this. I recently went to. Um, you know Ellen and Hepworth, who do that word in your ear? I do, yeah. Um, I went to their Holland Park um, event recently, yep. and Danny Baker was one of the speakers. And at the end, he he was at the end, but he was quite flustered because he didn't. He thought. He didn't know that it was, you had to walk to go from um, Holland Park Station to Holland Park, you know, to o- Opera Holland Park, yeah. where it was. So he got there a bit late, so he was a bit flustered, but he did a really funny set, and he was the last person to speak. As he, and then he was, as he was he was. just walking out on his own, and I was just happened to be walking out at the same time as Danny Baker. And I said to him, and we got talking, and he told me about their future plans for, for his... His Treehouse. majestic radio show with uh, Danny Kelly—that's that's apparently going to come back in some form. But then we talked about six oh six. I never forget the first six oh six that he did. Andy Townsend r- uh, rang up to complain about the referee. Um, on I think he was playing for Chelsea at the time. So yeah. we so that you reminded me of that when we were talking about Danny Baker. But yeah, the 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 the, the best night I had in New York involving football was I had an American friend of mine in in PR who said, oh, you'd really be into this thing happening tonight um, that Steve Nash is organising. It's this charity football match with English players um, followed by a party. I couldn't go to the actual football match, but I went along to the party in a nightclub. And it was just very weird because there was... Robbie Fowler and Steve McManaman and Te- uh, Thierry Henry. Nobody was really paying them much, much interest. It was very easy to chat to them in a way that it perhaps wouldn't have been had you met them in their natural stomping ground. Um, I, I think think was that's, just very
0: yeah surreal. I think that's the best way of encountering a footballer because my definition of success is the ability to walk down Oxford Street, nip into one of the high-end shops and buy like a handbag or a coat with the money that you've earned from... I don't know, producing music or being a football agent and being able to walk out and completely unmolested, that to me is a better way of success than what Thierry Henry has had, which is in the last six months having to come off social media because of the amount of racism he's getting. And I I think with with regard to football journalism, it's changed because the access is nil. Every story on the BBC Sport website is you're on the right side of history because you're saying, oh, look over there, there's some racism. What are we going to do about it? What are we going to do about these young lads yeah, who no, are doing their jobs
1: yeah, and it, it yeah. reaches to
0: Simone Biles and Naomi Osaka? They, they have no place to yeah. go to escape. There's no compression room.
1: It's pretty dark what's happened to Twitter and sports in the last decade or so. I I initially, as I earlier alluded to, I got it all wrong. I thought it was just good fun. And I thought that... I remember my favourite... It remains my favourite as a Spurs fan. It remains my favourite tweet when John Henry um, tweeted about when Arsenal were interested in Luis Suarez. John Henry himself, maybe someone tweeted it for him, but it was it looked like it. It come from him. He tweeted, "What how, what are they smoking at the Emirates?" Mm-hmm. Um, which is which is, I think is a is a positive use of Twitter for football communication because. Uh, because you thought, well, good. Our, our Arsenal have been, you know, very in a high-profile way, been cut down to size, and of course, they didn't get Luis Suarez. But no, more seriously, you're absolutely right. It's um, feels like we've kind of getting to, to the end game here, where clubs have to really reevaluate their social media policies, and it's just. If, if I was a footballer now, would I, I'd probably have a Twitter account, but I probably wouldn't tweet that much
0: at all. No, that's what oh, Troy Deeney does. Just, uh, with, this will go out the week before Troy Deeney has got his book Redemption out. We know the Troy story. Yeah, it's, awesome. it's not called Troy yeah. story for some reason, but um, he's very uh, vocal about what the, what the social media companies are doing to stop the racism because ultimately Troy is a dad. He probably doesn't want his kids seeing daddy get abused which is what they would have. And um, he is, in the same way that a lot of pop stars are now making their own documentaries, I think footballers are becoming their own media brands. Um, and we're also talking the day after the Juventus Woman Twitter account put out that photo that maybe by the time this goes out, people will have forgotten about it, but what a stupid thing to put out because Juventus would have loads of fans in East Asia.
1: Absolutely. It's so I think, I think one of the problems as well is that it's very easy to to say something on social media that gets misinterpreted, isn't it? So in terms of your your words, if we were having a conversation and I said something to to to, to you and you did a double take um, and said, "What do you mean by that?" and I explained the context, and then you thought, "Oh, okay, Tom's not saying what I thought he meant initially." Um, but of course, there's there's no equivalent vehicle for that on on social media. It's massively problematic. How
0: can Um, you have a communication (laughs) tool without context or tone? I mean obviously I follow a lot of Spurs accounts
1: and I've noticed the it was a lot more formal a few years ago and now it's you know
0: the deluxe paint dog.
1: Occasionally I see something and and they're trying to be funny or something and this just doesn't, doesn't doesn't quite work or they kind of announce these obscure partnerships as well Um, And you're thinking, you know, don't, don't do that. And yeah, sometimes, you know, sometimes I'll, I'll fall for it. And sometimes I'll, I'll say, okay, well, I'll just, you know, I'll just read the comments under
0: the Global Tire Company announcement um, for my own amusement, Um, but it's not healthy. No, completely not. Whoever said don't read below the line is absolutely right. Uh, In the second half of this conversation, we will talk about football literature um, which Tottenham legend do you want on your football library card? Do you want Hunter Davis? Or perhaps you would want Brian Scovell? Yeah,
1: uh, well, Brian Scovell's my uncle, so 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 Brian, yeah. He actually supports, um, supports West Ham. Oh, OK. Um, he's a very impartial uh, journalist. He was a you know, really impartial journalist, so it never came through in his reporting. But, um, no, I grew up... You know, Brian would take me to matches in the 80s. Um, oh, gosh. And it would be great because you could just go to... I remember meeting Terry Fennick at at a uh, QPR Liverpool game uh, afterwards and and Jim Smith, who was managing QPR. Um, That was one of my earliest games. Um, So it was a wonderful, um, wonderful introduction that he gave me. I remember the Norman Giller interview I heard. Ted Croker came up. And I remember being in the car with Brian and his late wife, Audrey, on the day that launched, and I remember, I don't think I met Ted Croker um, as a kid. I met Trevor Brooking as a kid, because Brian did, did his book and, and took me to a signing. But I didn't meet, I don't if I went to that launch, i have forgotten. I wish I could, I wish I could know if I, if I went to that launch, but um, I can't, I can't mm-hmm. recall. Brian's love was actually cricket, to be honest with you, um, So, but he's, um... He was a, he's a very good football journalist. He's written so many books about, about it.
0: Well, and I thank you for his details because I do hope to follow one after another. And uh, in September, I'm celebrating the 90th birthday of Brian Glanville. So I'm sure Brian uh, knows the other Brian. Yeah. Um, well,
1: to be honest with you, having me on and Brian on is like having a law student and a Supreme Court judge because Brian has written so many you know, books on football. And I saw him recently because... He, I mean, it was obviously catch up with a close family member, obviously, but the but ostensible purpose of my visit was my son's friend is a diehard Chelsea fan. And Brian wrote a book called Chelsea Azuri about Zola and Di Matteo and Vialli. Really? Um, and Ken Bates didn't like it. You're kidding. So he didn't sell it in the shop. Yeah, oh, that's wow. something to, to ask Brian about.
0: I will definitely, So yeah.
1: it fell between two stools because it wasn't, you know, it was a, it was a, it was a very respectful book about a period in time. But you know, Brian didn't um, hold back about uh, certain things. Like I think he pointed out that the the penalty Chelsea got against Leicester in the on the, on the FA Cup game, I mean the run up to the final against Middlesbrough was in was in no way a penalty, for instance. And I think Ken Bates took exception to that. Anyway, I. I bought Chelsea URI again, and, and, and,
0: and, and got Brian to sign it, and he's in he's in good form. That's super. And you said he was in hospital this year, or unwell. He
1: was in hospital. Yeah, he 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 wasn't he, he was hospital a few months ago, but he's um out out now, and, I, and I, I spoke to him recently, and um and and he's on he's on good form.
0: I wonder what he thinks, because there's news today that Rio and Anton Ferdinand are part of a consortium bidding for West Ham. I think the sooner Sullivan and Gold go, the better for West Ham, because the only bad thing about them at the moment, they've got an incredible manager, a really good first eleven. they might need a centre-forward. But the problem is the owners, who um, the fans really don't get on with. They're almost succeeding in spite of the ownership. Uh, From your perspective... Uh, if you're a financial journalist would you be saying to Sullivan and Gold sell up now
1: the immediacy of the sale has been held up by the last the, the season that West Ham have just had so actually I think in the long term yes they should sell I don't think they've been um, been wonderful custodians of the club but that last season where David Moyes has uh, pretty impressively but received wisdom um Means that I think it all depends on the, on the first few months of, of this season. They're a funny club, West Ham, aren't they? Um, the um, the '06 when they lost the FA Cup final.
0: Yes, the Gerard the final. Part, very unluckily.
1: Who would have thought that it would have all unravelled for Pardew in, in two or three months after after that? So things can turn on a dime uh, as they can for every club, but especially especially at West
0: Ham. Uh, Daniel oh. Daniel Hurley's brilliant book about the Mascarano tevez season, where Pardew left and Kerbisley came in, um, is superb. Um, and it's one of the many books in the football library that deals with a particular moment in a particular history of the club. And um, I want to finish this first half by talking about Uh, The team where to dare is to do and where George Mendes is already salivating over the prospect of spending all the Harry Kane money on some of his clients. So we're talking on the 6th of August. Um, You reckon it's curtains for Kane?
1: Probably, but possibly not. Hopefully not. See, Johnny, this is why I could never be a day-to-day football journalist. Because I don't want Kane to go. (laughs) And my heart says that we're going to see an outcome along the lines of Stephen Gerrard staying at Liverpool and rejecting Chelsea overtures. But um, Mm. it certainly doesn't doesn't look that that way, does it?
0: Someone, Um, uh, Jonathan Wilson, made the point, if you're Manchester City and you've already got Foden, Sterling and Grealish, if you're Harry Kane, you already know them and you're playing with De Bruyne... And God bless Tanguy Edombele and Giovanni Lacelso, but they're not Kevin De Bruyne. And also Man City have got the um, the, the money. But, I mean, Harry Kane, he's got his house in Chingford. He'll stay there. He'll just build another it, house in Manchester.
1: It really hurts. Tell you why it really hurts. Because Kane leaving Spurs will leave such a hole in Spurs. And I know that people say... Yes, but we can spend that money yeah. on replacements. And but we know how, you know, that was a, a mixed success last time. But it certainly, it certainly, we're t- I'm talking, I'm talking about Bayern here, Bay obviously. Yes, 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 Certainly took time to flower those signings, and it will just leave such a hole in the club. And you know, we had the Tim Sh- Tim Sherwood era, which I <laughs> Tim ironically Sh- actually <laughs> produced Kane, was just so upsetting. People forget, by the way, that I think that Tim Sherwood's greatest contribution to Spurs, apart from arguably Kane, Foster and Kane was good, but um, Villa capitulated to Leicester early on in that title-winning season in such spectacular fashion that I think, without that Villa, Villa debacle, Awesome. One okay. amazing comeback. So that is Tim Sherwood's contribution to Spurs because of course mm. of course we think we should have won the title that season, although history shows that we finished third, doesn't it? Which is just very Spurs as well, enabling us to say, Well, we didn't finish second, so you know, Leicester 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 won ahead of us
0: and not it's
1: us. Else, yeah. The next season we should have possibly one as well, but Conte had Chelsea just more more consistent. Um, Kane certainly hasn't gone out of his way to make overtures that he, he wants to remain. Yeah, uh, it's just it, what fascinates me is Daniel Levy um, must be licking his lips at doing battle with um, Charlie Kane and the Kane family. Oh, I see, yes. Because I think Daniel Levy likes these situations. I've seen enough of them now to think that he likes the chaos. Um, he likes like our—I don't want to get political—but like our prime minister, mm-hmm. he he likes getting in trouble, and then he, and then he likes getting out of trouble. Um, so I, I think subconsciously he's relishing all this.
0: I haven't read the the piece on Daniel Levy in the way that the piece on Mauricio Pochettino was his book, Brave New World, which is sublime. Yeah. And the great thing yeah. about that book is it shows it's Alex Ferguson's law, pick a chairman. And the bond between Levy and Pochettino was so great because Pochettino's success brought Spurs success. And obviously once you reach the top of the mountain, the only way is down. And now Mauricio is, um, well, as we speak, I'm sure he's on the phone to Lionel Messi saying, hey, um, and they're, they're talking about back home in Rosario and uh, sharing some conversations. But it would be a real shame if Lionel Messi moves to become effectively a pawn of Qatar. Um,
1: yeah, no, I completely, completely agree with you. It's true that we haven't seen the, you know, you here. And also, I remember, um, I remember encountering a, uh, a City accountant, that elite Spurs membership.
0: Oh, the Platinum uh, club?
1: Yes, that. He, he told me all kinds of stuff about Daniel Levy and Joe Lewis that, um, that the football library's lawyers would not want me to repeat now. Thank you, Sam. I, re- I respect all, that, yes. All, there's all <laughs> kinds of, of scuttlebutt about the Spurs owners of the last 20 years. What's often forgotten, Johnny, is that um, Daniel Levy's best move was when he took over... At, which was firing George Graham, seemingly for being George Graham. That was the charge. I think, I think the reason was talking about transfers uh, out of school or something like that. But it was um, it was very endearing. And then hiring Glenn Hoddle. And you just thought, this is someone who really understands the club. But then, you know, over time, we've just seen these... It's exhausting being a Spurs fan sometimes, you know? It's just really just kind of... You just kind of... It's fine when you can just communicate with other Spurs fans about the frustrations and the challenges of, of trying to drink champagne on a beer budget and all of that. But when the outside world is laughing at you, as they are doing now to a certain extent, that's very annoying.
0: I was never exhausted as a Spurs fan because I went to... My friend Gavin was mascot for the 7-2 win against Ipswich. Uh, Mauricio Tarico played. Stefan Everson scored a hat-trick that day. Yeah. Um, and then I remember being at a League Cup game against Birmingham. And I really thought there's no point being here. This seems like a shell of a club, and I call it the Banjewitchevich era. Um, yeah, and then, yeah. ha- what do you remember of that era? Kind of late '90s. Hell, I want to ask
1: you 2000s. this, John. I did want to ask you. You went to Spurs. I heard, I heard the football everything with your brother. Yeah. You went to Spurs for a number of years, and you then went to Watford. I love. You know, I think if you grew up liking football in the '80s, you you love Watford. Part, you know, the part of you loves Watford for the for the real, you know, community aura that surrounds the Oh, I've the heard club. the
0: stories of of John Barnes turning up to school prize-givings and. I um, mean,
1: even even as a kid, if Watford were on TV on the Sunday, there was just so, a really homely feel, right? So, so, so I'm not going to. Um, and I remember when John Barnes was sold and reading about Graham Taylor and Shute, just telling him to go and just saying, yeah, you have to do it, come on, and kind of jokingly pushing him at him out. There was a real kind of intimacy about Watford. So don't be insulted when I say this, but for you to abandon Spurs for Watford is like dining at the Woolsey and then saying, I'm just going to go to Burger King and uh, eat there now.
0: Yeah, that's probably true, but this isn't the Spurs I grew up with. The Spurs of today, Daniel Levy Spurs, which is so... They've got the new stadium, which I've not been to yet, but Rich has. It's a, you are dining at the Wolsey because of all the money that's come in in the last 10 years. Because let's not forget, Luka Modric wouldn't have become World Player of the Year without those performances for Spurs with the likes of Van yeah. der Vaart, uh, Kane, uh, Soldado to an extent, um, Vincent Janssen not to an extent... Uh, And then you've got World Cup-winning goalkeeper, Hugo Yuris, who, although he can't drive anymore, I think he's certainly an improvement on every other goalkeeper Spurs have had in my lifetime. Obviously, you had the great Ray Clements beforehand, whom you may have met, Ray Clements.
1: No, actually, I did. Weirdly, I bumped into Ray Clements in Harvey Nichols in London. Brilliant. It's weird. It's weird. I think the Always bumped into footballers in department stores. But uh, Ray Clements, um, I, I love Ray Clements, the late, the, the late Ray Clements. I won't hear a word against him. But I do wonder, the FA Cup final against Coventry, which I still find, that 86-87 season, when Spurs, um, the, the, the regular prize that Spurs win over the years the best team to win nothing. And that season, very unlucky against Arsenal in the semi-finals, very unlucky in the final. And I wonder if Clements just passed his passed his prime. If you've never watched that Coventry final in its entirety, I it's, um, yeah, I, it's upsetting, but it's a very it's a great final. Because these... this is the thing: the, the eighty-seven FA Cup final where Co- Coventry win three-two, and Brian Kilcline commits that outrageous foul at the end and Keith Houchin scores that wonderful diving header and this is the thing about football in the 80s that I think people overlook now although Ian Herbert wrote about this well in the mail last year after Heisel and the Bradford Fire football really got quite exciting again in terms of the FA Cup finals and in terms of yes clubs were banned from Europe but um but actually, um, I think it kind of, as a sport, it really—it was much more. You know, it's got a reputation now for being quite, for being quite drab in the eighties. But I think that's slightly unfair, is what I'm trying to
0: say. Yeah, I'm just looking at this eleven. Um, I was going to get you to name them, but Clements in goal, Houghton, Thomas, Steve Hodge, who had Maradona shirt, Richard Goff, Gary Mabbott. Yeah. Uh, Gary Mavot, by the way, seems to become a national treasure over the course of the lockdown because his... Absolutely. Yeah. Ringing all the fans. I, I'd
1: love to meet him. Never actually
0: met him. Ah, I'll try and sort it out. Uh, Clive Allen and Paul Allen and then Waddle Hoddle are dealers. Oof. Um, and
1: Allen, uh, it's, it's Hoddle's last game for Spurs. Oh, right. And um, Allen scores early on with, a, with, a, with a, actually a, a diving header as well. So there's two, two diving headers in that game. And Hoddle, and there's a mix up with the Holston sponsorship on the on the shirt, so some players have Holston and other players don't and Alan, I think Clyde Allen points this out to Hoddle after he just scored, and Hoddle says, don't worry we will we, we will be on the beers afterwards, and it's really that kind of you know triumph triumphalist uh mm-hmm. attitude that uh that results in us, in us losing, And it's crazy, and Pleat, pleat leaves um, the autumn of that year to be replaced by, by Venables. Um, uh-huh. Did you see that documentary on Venables?
0: Uh, I've read about him so much that I know the story.
1: It's, what, I, mean, such a, I didn't know he was such a um, well-rounded guy.
0: Yeah, well, uh, he also he, he, he brought the tactics into English football. Uh, Jonathan Wilson's very yeah. good at talking about this, but yeah, he... Absolutely. Yeah.
1: Absolutely. That's another reason why I never became a football judge, because I'm, I'm in awe of someone like Jonathan Wilson, who can just spontaneously um, talk about tactics in such a high-level way. I think that's why Henry, Henry Winter um, became, became one of the doyens of his profession, because he could... You'd read his pieces in The Independent and The Telegraph, Growing up and just think, wow, this this is just an on the whistle match report that's that's so astute. Um, and I think you could, you as a journalist, you could have got you you c- could have got away with um, pointing out about someone getting sent off and, and generally Or you know, what I'm saying is you could find your way around that. But I always feel a bit of a fraud um, doing that. Although I did do some football reporting, very. Uh, early
0: on, in, in my career. Ah, which we will get to in the second half. Uh, it would be egregious of me not to ask whether the Nuno Espirito Santo era will be anything other than a success. But this season is just got to get the first season under. If Kane goes, uh, keeps Son. Um, get this Brian Gill yeah. character up to speed with the English game, uh, fifth. Fifth or sixth? I like Nuno's calmness. I like his... Attitude. Um,
1: he reminds me of my, ma- I, my. I was brought up in West London. My parents are devout Catholics, and um, my mother used to bring a lot of priests around the house when I was growing up. And mm-hmm. um, Nuno reminds me. Of, he's got that monastic aura about him. Um, he reminds me of one of the, you know, of a priest of my. Mother. He'd look
0: good like, in a cassock.
1: Bring around. I wonder how spiritual Nuno is, but he certainly he certainly conveys exactly. He can he, he conveys that kind of uh, missionary purpose. So so um, it'll be fascinating. The other thing about Nuno is he's a bit of a chameleon, isn't he, in terms of his tactics? So mm. you look back at um, Wolves and, and, and Wolves are playing much different tactically to. The club's part, he was managing prior to that, so um, you wonder. Of course, Mourinho talk the talk about adapting to the Spurs style, and then uh, mm-hmm.
0: nope. the rest we know. But um,
1: it'll be interesting with Nuno to see um, to see what happened. Oh, yeah, what is the? That's that's another thing. I'm never quite worked out. Um, you know, we give we used to give even players like you stick if, if they tried to do something clever and, and lost the ball so uh, I've take. I'm always taken it with a pinch of salt this kind of Spurs Spurs style and you know it was it, was, uh, it peaked with, with the Aussie era um, and, and that didn't end well so I've um, quite figured out what it is We whether or not failure is okay if it is accompanied by glory
0: it, the game is about glory I'm just looking at your fixtures Man City at home Wolves away, Watford at home, Crystal Palace away, they're managed by Patrick Vieira, Chelsea at home, and this weekend coming, it's my dad's birthday on uh, this Sunday as you listen to this. Do you know the fixture? Super Sunday, September 26th?
1: Ooh, is it Chelsea?
0: Arsenal Chelsea? Arsenal-Spurs, Arsenal away, yeah. which is a great game to celebrate Brian Glanville's 90th, uh, which is on the Friday Uh, And this chat goes out that week. So we will take a quick break and we'll come back after this.